they have to famous bank robber one time, why do you rob banks? He says, well, that's where they keep the money. And it's the same thing with, with white-collar crime. It's about the money. You're listening to Alton Sizemore, a retired FBI special agent with over 25 years in Forensic Accounting. Welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. The more you can learn, the more tools you have in your quiver to be able to do a good investigation and hopefully come to the right conclusions as far as presenting cases for potential prosecution. In this episode, you will hear about a career in Forensic Accounting with the FBI, why being a lifelong learner is important, the importance of understanding both sides of litigation, the importance of communication, and a life lesson in ethics. He spent over 25 years as a special agent with the FBI, rising all the way up to assistant special agent in charge. He is a CPA and CFE. He is also an instructor with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. Alton Sizemore, welcome to the Fraud Fighter Podcast. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I appreciate the invitation. Well, it's a pleasure. It's all mine. Hey, you spent over 25 years with the FBI and rising all the way up to the ASAC level. What compelled you to join the FBI? Well, like many young people, I wanted to fly jets in the armed services and be a fighter pilot. I waited a little bit too late to put myself in the right position to get all the education and background that I would need to be able to put myself in the right area to do that. And when I found out that it was a little bit too late for me to, to pursue that goal. The next goal was law enforcement because I had a great deal and still do, obviously, respect for law enforcement. I started talking to various individuals about law enforcement, and everybody I talked to said, well, if you're going to be in law enforcement, the FBI is one of many very good law enforcement agencies, but it's one that allows you to have a lot more latitude in the various areas uh, of law enforcement, whether it be white-collar crime, civil rights, you know, violent crime, drugs, counterintelligence task forces. They have a lot of different opportunities within the organization. And so I reset my goal to become an FBI agent, which created all kinds of issues because then I didn't have the right educational background for that. I ended up losing quite a few hours that I'd already earned in college, changed majors, thought that the easiest and fastest way to get into the FBI was as an accountant. So I, you know, I didn't know a debit from a credit, but that was my goal and got into the accounting program at the University of Alabama. And through perseverance and uh, that desire to, to be part of a law enforcement agency, I was fortunate enough to be interviewed and selected and became an agent in 1980. So when you're at the FBI, I'm assuming that you move around quite a bit and hold various positions. What kind of major positions did you hold at the FBI? What kind of investigations did you do? I was fortunate, and, and, I, and I'm very grateful for the fact that um, I did select the accounting program. I, and one of the reasons for that, I thought it was the fastest way to get home. If you were a lawyer, you could go straight in, but you had to have four years of law school. But as an accountant, you only had to have one year of experience in the area you graduated. So when I came in as a special agent accountant, I was assigned to a white-collar crime squad, uh, initially in Jacksonville, Florida, which is where I grew up and where I initially applied. I was there for two years working white-collar crime. Then I got transferred to Kansas City, again, on a white-collar crime squad. From Kansas City, which is a medium-sized office, I was mandated to have to go to, and in hindsight, glad I had the opportunity to go to a large office, which ended up being Philadelphia, as a special agent on a white-collar crime squad. 
the cases that you work as a white collar comp squad are, are really complicated and rewarding at the same time because the people that you're investigating are very, very smart people. They, in many cases, have stolen a lot of money. They can get good attorneys. It's better than, in fact, I had another agent tell me that one time it's better than work violent crime because he said, all I do all day is chase people whose IQs about their hat size. <laughs> Bank robberies are not the most effective and efficient way to make money because the solution rates about 80% and the average bank robbery nets, I think it's $11,000. The average white color crime is $250,000 and the solution rates about 33%. I decided to put in for a supervisor position back at FBI headquarters in the FBI's internal audit unit, which not only audited from an internal standpoint, the books and records of the FBI at FBI headquarters, but also audited field offices. So for approximately two years, I was a supervisor in the audit unit at headquarters, traveling quite a bit. Then I was fortunate enough to be selected to be on the inspection staff. So I spent a year as a full-time inspector's aide, um, going from field office to field office and at FBI headquarters, doing inspections within the FBI. After my time on the inspection staff, I was fortunate enough to be uh, selected as the unit chief for the audit unit. So I came back for the next two and a half years and had that position in, in D.C., at the end of that time as unit chief, um, I was selected as a white-collar crime supervisor in Birmingham, Alabama. I came here and, and had that position for about two years. Then we started, actually, we had, I went to the violent crime drug squad. Then they split that squad, and I was assigned to the drug side of it. And then after that, we started a cybercrime squad. So I had that for a period of time. Um, and then over that, uh, and my last uh, two and a half years were as the assistant special agent in charge here in the Birmingham division. And so I was responsible for all the programs that the FBI has here in, in this uh, jurisdiction, the Northern District of Alabama. Professionally, I was I started my career in Alabama, so I knew a little bit about your name. Actually, I was assigned to the JTTF for a few months uh, right after 9-11, but then uh, got reassigned. So. We professionally have crossed paths, even though we probably don't even know each other from the lineup. Enjoyed your cybercrime squad out there when I was out there as well. It was, it was, a, oh, it was good. a good group to work with. The training that you uh, received, certifications you earned, how did that help you in your fraud investigations? Well, all of your experiences, your background, the things that you've done, you're even down to the point of what your hobbies are, are important. Help you in your investigative efforts because... One of the things that's really important when you're doing an investigation is being able to, one, have some affiliation, some connection with the people that you're interviewing, whether they're good or bad, doesn't matter. You know, most, the vast majority of the people that I've been involved with investigating and that eventually uh, were convicted were not bad people. They were just, they, they were good people that made some stupid mistakes. That isn't always true, but, you know, for the most part, it was. So, you know, whether it's riding motorcycles or, you know, woodworking or whatever it happens to be, you can find something that will give you an opportunity to connect with the people that you're interviewing, whether it be a, a witness or a subject. So the training that I got, certainly as, as an accountant uh, in college, and then my training studying for and passing the CPA exam helped me with the financial matters. Uh, one of the interesting things, I think, and one of the reasons I'm I'm very fortunate to have had the opportunity to come in as a special agent accountant is the fact that the vast majority of the crimes that I investigated had to do with money. You know, they asked a famous bank robber one time, why do you rob banks? He says, well, that's why they keep the money. And it's the same thing with, with white-collar crime. It's about the money. Herb Green is a 
really great negotiator for the U.S. Uh, I got to meet him, and you know, his philosophy was, and the thing that he said over and over in his classes was, it's not the money, it's the money. Being able to understand and to interpret financial statements, to be able to understand how a person sets up phony accounts, how they use the debits and credits, although you don't have to get that deep in the weeds for the vast majority of financial crimes, but it helps to be able to understand what they did because your primary objective, even if you understand what they did and that person is charged and you end up being the person that has to explain that to either a grand jury or in a trial to the final jury. You have to be able to understand it well enough to know what they did, but be able to explain it in a way that someone who doesn't have an accounting background can understand. I'd like to say that the audiences for a jury, you have to expect them not to have an accounting background. At the most, they may have a GED sometimes because it's a it's a variety of people in that jury box. And you have to, in a sense, dumb it down to where they can understand he earned this money and transferred to the shell company and transferred it over here and stole the money. Exactly. It's it's a challenge, but it's certainly doable. And one of the best lessons that I ever learned was the, the one case that I had where we got a not guilty verdict after a jury trial. And I'll never forget the defense attorney, who was a former assistant United States attorney and actually knew him from his prior time with the government, kept me on the stand for two and a half days with my 18-column spreadsheet that was 40 pages long. And he would ask me a question about the number on page 12, column 6, row 47. If you take that and multiply it by the inverse relationship of the number on page, I could see the jury. They were lost. And I was too. He was asking me these convoluted questions. And at the time, I didn't realize that I had the I had the ability as the person being interviewed to bring it back to a level that they could understand. But at that time, I was a fairly new agent and I wasn't able to do that. So at the end of the trial, when he was found not guilty for multiple different reasons, but the jurors came up to myself and the, the prosecutor as we're walking out of the courtroom and said, can we ask you a question? And the attorney said, well, it depends on what it is. We're really not supposed to talk to you until we get permission. But they said, we want to know why you let the defense pick the jury. The attorney said, well, it really wasn't the defense. It was a give and take. And we, we had a part in that selection. He said, well, we thought the defense picked this because we told ourselves and the highest level of education of anybody on this jury was high school. And he said, and, and we didn't understand what they did. And I'll never forget this elderly gentleman in a plaid shirt looked at me and said, I knew they were guilty. But the judge said, if you have any reasonable doubt, you have to find them not guilty. And how can you not have reasonable doubt when you didn't understand what they did? That was an amazing lesson for me on making sure that I worked on it in advance so that I could take complicated areas that took me weeks, sometimes, or months to figure out and be able to explain it in a way that the next 12 people that walk past the door hopefully could understand. So far, it's been it's work, it, but it exactly. was a great lesson for me to learn. That accounting background helps me do that. I testified in the grand jury for two and a half days on the Health South case with Richard Scrushy to be able to take that case, which involved several billion dollars, and to be able to explain it to the jurors was a very rewarding experience. The grand jury was very, very eager to understand, and they can ask questions, which is really great, because if they don't understand something, then you have that second opportunity to go back and say, well, here's how that works, and let me, let me give you an example. 
A grand jury uh, sometimes is a good test of whether or not they actually understand it in the general public. Exactly. They'll ask them. They'll ask them good questions. Yeah, they do. They really do, and I've always appreciated that. But that training, you know, the accounting training and the continuing professional education that you have to have as a CPA has always helped. Back in the late 90s, I got involved with the Association of Certified Fraud Examiners. It's been a, a very, very good relationship I've had. I teach some of their classes now. And the training that they have, I find to be very, very effective. And I'm not just saying that because, you know, I help teach the classes. In the advanced class, we take real cases that have been altered with names and to protect the guilty. But then we act them out in class. We give out information. They're able to actually interview people who are ACFE employees that pretend to be the people that they've been studying in their case. And and if they ask the right questions, they can solve the case. And that kind of hands-on experience is, is really good. The other thing that the ACFE does is they teach the law. They teach accounting very on a very high level. They don't get down into the weeds uh, very, very far as far as debits and credits. They teach financial statements. They teach ethics. They teach, you know, things that you run into as a criminal investigator all the time. The other thing is that they try to stay up to date as best they can with the what's going on in the law, as well as what's going on as far as interviewing techniques and things like that. So whether it's ACFE or any other source of forensic accounting, fraud investigation, education, training, get as much as you possibly can. I, I, I consider myself to be a lifelong learner. I'm taking courses right now through the Shelby County Sheriff's Office where, you know, where you mentioned that I'm on the cold case squad, CPR classes and first aid classes. Of course, we shoot and then they have uh, ethics, crowd control, the law here in Alabama. The more you can learn, the more tools you have in your quiver to be able to do a good investigation and hopefully come to the right conclusions as far as presenting cases for potential prosecution. Yeah, getting that accounting degree and maybe that CPA license and CFE certificate is just the beginning. Oh, absolutely. The bad guys are always changing tactics and technology always changes. The law typically doesn't change that much, but chasing these people down is, is always a cat and mouse game for sure. Absolutely. Tell me about a uh, fraud investigation that you are most proud of or made something that made a difference in your career at the FBI. Almost every single one is, 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 again, a learning experience. And believe me, I've made lots of mistakes. And there are cases that I wish I could go back and redo. Some of my best interviews are in the car by myself on the way home after the interview is over. <laughs> <You know? laughs> We've all had that, like, boy, I wish I'd have testified and said it a little bit exactly. differently. Yes, I understand. Or asked that question a little bit differently. Well, the, the case that I thought of was a case I had in Kansas City, which involved a, a $1.2 million fraud by an individual in remember the guy's name right now. But I'll never forget my supervisor, it's on the White Collar Crime Squad at that time, my supervisor came out and said, okay, I'm going to assign this case to you. Several agents have had it in the past. It's somewhat complicated. It had to do with uh, commodity futures, uh, a con artist that was uh, cheating people in investments. And he said, here's the bottom line. I want you to take a good look at it. If you can do something with it, let's do it. If not, I'm going to close it. And so I thought, wow, it's an opportunity at the same time. A lot of other people I know that were very good agents, I'm sure, had that case and, and, and had difficulty with it. So I started looking at it. There were rooms full of documents. and But fortunately, I was able to figure out what he had done. I worked with the Commodity Futures uh, Commission and was able to prove that when he was telling his investors that certain commodities were going in, in an upward direction, they were really going in the opposite direction. I was able to show that he had spent 
the vast majority of that money that he collected never even went into the commodity futures. It just went right into his bank account and was used for personal expenses and luxury items and things like that. Pretty, pretty common story. So he sold him a, an investment idea for the commodities and turned right around and just pocketed. pocketed the money. Yeah, it's almost like a pyramid scheme or a Ponzi scheme where the new money coming in, if someone tried to get out, he would he would try to convince them to stay in. But then if they did get, want to get out, he would use other investors' money to keep them happy so that he could continue. Did he give them like fraudulent documents? Yes. Lots of fraudulent documents. I was able to find those. I was able to show the pattern, put it into a a presentation that we made to he and his attorneys uh, at the U.S. Attorney's Office in, in Kansas City. Bottom line is he pled guilty and made restitution of $1.2 million. I always felt like that case, when it was a tough case, people were ready to give up on it. That's the kind of case that you want to dig your teeth into. And it, it, they don't always work. I mean, there are sometimes when every white collar crime is, you know, solution rate is like 33%. So there's a good many of them out there that you're not going to be able to make. But at the same time, the way I look at it, and I've got some cases in Shelby County right now that are the same way. And I'm very thankful for this. I'm not the judge and I'm not the jury. My job is to gather facts and to put together a presentation for the U.S. Attorney's Office. They're the ones that make the decision on whether they're to be prosecuted or not. And fortunately, it's a judge and a jury and not me that makes the decision as to whether they're innocent or guilty. If I give it my best shot at the end of the day, whether I come out, the trial is successful as far as the prosecution or whether the case doesn't even go forward because it's declined for whatever reason, as long as I can say I gave it my very best effort, I did all that I could, I can sleep at night. I'm happy. I go on to the next case. I've had to learn that sometimes, too, is when you work on a case, you can bat maybe 90% on your investigations, but that 10% sometimes is just not there because there's willfulness is not there, witnesses die. Exactly. It has nothing to do with the skill set of the forensic accountant looking at this information. It has everything to do with just external factors that just don't work. I used to tell the agents when they would come on the squad, you know, give it your best. You know, don't break the law, obviously. Crack some eggs if you have to. Go out and and do things that will hopefully move the case forward. But if it really gets screwed up and it's declined, you can't make the case. And I'll give you three more. You know, it's not like there's a shortage of cases. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. There's plenty of things out there to get to uh, sink your teeth in if one is absolutely. You transitioned from the FBI to the private sector. Tell me about how that transition went. It, it, it's a little difficult to go from a, in my opinion, from a W-2 paying job that's uh, prestigious in a sense, especially with it being an FBI, and then deciding to walk away from it, do something else. How was that? What was your thought process? That was a very tough decision. And um, I love the FBI, and I miss it because I've been retired now since 2005. But I, I, one of the reasons I volunteered at the Shelby County Sheriff's Office is because I love this work, and I love the challenge of the investigation and proving the case. It also makes me feel useful, which is a good thing. When you get to be my age, you want to feel like you're actually doing something for the, the good of mankind. The primary reason that I retired when I did, and I retired at... 55, I would I would have been mandatory in two years anyway. So I had started in, in 1980. So in 2005, I had 25 years in. That was part of it. I wanted to get to that milestone. But once I got to 25, I felt like if I stayed to the very end, every year I stayed is a little bit better retirement, but not that much. But at the same time, it makes me less marketable every year, every year that I get older, every year that I'm out of the um, the, the public 
working cases on a on a non law enforcement area, my marketability goes down. So I was fortunate enough to just let a few friends know that I was thinking about retirement. Uh, a forensic accounting firm here in Birmingham, a very good one, Forensic Strategic Solutions. Then one of the principals came to me and said, we, we would be interested in hiring you. And so I had a figure in mind that I felt like I would like to have, not that I would necessarily get what I want. I knew what other law enforcement individuals uh, were making in the jobs that they had, whether it be security or investigations or whatever. And so they made me a very generous offer, and that made it easy because with my retirement, then I could go to work. But again, it was a W-2 you know, type job where I get a paycheck, and it was that security that I would have a, a second paycheck, and then I could afford to do a few things that I hadn't been able to do as a government employee with my original paycheck. I, mean, I got paid very well. I'm not, I'm not complaining right. at all. The forensic accounting firm it was a, a great place to work. They gave me the opportunity to expand my my knowledge and my training. They were very into into training and, and giving me all those opportunities and allowing me to, to continue to do the things that I love to do. So that made that transition easy. And I was very, very fortunate that the accounting background helped me as a forensic accountant as opposed to an investigator that that could work criminal cases but didn't have accounting specialty was a big factor in the amount of money that I was able to make, the kind of work that I was able to do, and uh, allowed me basically to go back to doing what I did as an agent. And I did. I worked beside FBI agents for, you know, I have over 60 felony convictions since I left the FBI working in private matters. But obviously, I'm working with the FBI with the state attorney general's office or whatever law enforcement agency had jurisdiction in that case. The accounting background helped a lot. It gave me, it opened more doors. It, it gave me more opportunities. I'm very thankful for that. I was very fortunate. So if someone's in former law enforcement that wants to go into fraud investigations in a private sector, what advice would you give to that person? Work as many cases as you can while you're still in law enforcement. Uh, don't be afraid of the difficult cases. To every Every case that you work on, gives you more knowledge and, and that continuing learning, you know, lifetime learner concept is, is very important. Make sure that you have a good networking system where you maintain contact with people, not just for the purpose of making money, but for the purpose of sharing information and for being able to reach out to people who have a specialty. For example, I, I refer a lot of people. I'm not taking new cases now. Uh, the only thing I'm actually doing at this point is working with the Shelby County Sheriff's Office, but I refer a lot of people to other forensic accountants. I refer them to computer specialists because most white collar crimes involve computers now. I refer them to people that I know that do investigations. I don't do domestic type investigations, but I know people that do. So my referrals are just, I refer them and then it's between the person that called me and the person I referred them to. And the best way to make those inroads, to market yourself is to not to focus on how much money you can make, but focus on how you can help the person that called you. I would agree with you 100% networking is very important. It has a bad rap. It does. But really networking is just being useful and a resource to other people that you can right. help. And then later on, you can worry about the money later. Exactly. You know, find out what they need and make sure if you can do it and it's in your sweet spot, then great. Go ahead and do it. But I've turned a lot of things down that 
you know, I, I just tell the, the person calling me, said, that's not my area of expertise. And, you know, I, I, I don't feel comfortable doing that. But let me give you the name of someone you can talk to. I refer everything right now. But even when I was still looking for work and uh, when I left the forensic accounting firm, mainly because I just at that point in time wanted to cut back on the work and didn't want to be full time. So I started my own firm. Uh, but I was very selective in what I took. So when someone calls you, think about them. What do they need? How can I help them? Them get what they need. And sometimes I tell people, you're spending good money for bad. I mean, and that happens, especially in civil cases. You can't let emotion overwhelm you because you can end up, you know, you can lose $50,000 to someone who's spent $150,000 with on attorneys trying to get that money back. And this good money after bad. So you have to be careful with that. But again, putting the, your client first. When you were transitioning from the bureau to the private sector, and now since you've been in the private sector for many years, what do you wish you had known before you started out in your private sector? Leaving the government, and you, you mentioned this, leaving the government and going out and getting a second job or starting your own firm is a very, very difficult and sometimes scary proposition. Um, even though you have a retirement, your retirement is not your full pay. So there is some unknown there. And what I wish I had realized is that in the forensic accounting area, at least, uh, there is a significant demand for investigators that have an accounting background that are CPAs or, or certified fraud examiners. I wish I had realized that it would have been much easier to transition into my own firm. The firm I worked for was outstanding. I, I learned a lot, a great deal. I got a chance to work some amazing cases. I have no regrets whatsoever. You know, they, it's a wonderful firm. But when I started on my own, it changed my whole perspective. I wish I had done that right from the get-go because you have so much more freedom, so much more latitude, not only from the billing standpoint, but from, you know, the kind of cases that you take, the, the pressure to bring in work. Is not as great, although you still you're, you're in business to make money, and that's important. But at the same time, you know, especially if you retired from the government and you have a pension, you're not desperate to have work. I know people who they don't get a certain amount of revenue in, in a particular period of time, the lights get turned off. So, but as as a government retiree, I wish I had realized that it would be that easy to bring in work and to to make a, a reasonable and, and decent living, and uh, still do the kind of things that you enjoy. You were talking about there is a strong demand. Can you dig down a little deeper? Where is the demand at that you see? Is it demand in the working for attorneys? Is it demand working for the banks? Is it demand working for law enforcement? What do you mean by there's a lot of demand for forensic accountants? The primary source for the kind of cases that that a forensic accountant would work in the cases that I've worked is through attorneys, no question. And that name recognition, the the reputation that you have, your reputation is everything. It really is. That's why you shouldn't take cases that you're not comfortable with, because if the case goes sideways, your, your name, your name is attached to it, to it and, and people want to try to avoid you because then you, it's going to come back every time you get on the stand. Well, weren't you involved in this case and didn't this go wrong? So it's one of those situations where you, you want to take the cases that come to you, but at the same time, you have to be selective. And the vast majority of the cases that I get are from attorneys. I get calls from attorneys all the time. And, and most of my friends, believe it or not, are attorneys. And they're, they're great people. You know, their job is to litigate. And I don't do divorce work, but 
you know, there's a lot of money in uh, evaluations. I don't do evaluations, you know, business evaluations, future earnings, those kind of things. Uh, the firm I worked for does a great job with those kind of things. My area of expertise is, is criminal investigations. And the civil side of civil fraud allegations is also very, very similar. I get calls from attorneys that represent banks, that represent businesses, that represent clients. And interestingly enough, a lot of the cases that I've that I've worked were with defense attorneys. In fact, some of the defense attorneys that I testified in cases that they were the defense attorneys when I was still with the Bureau. The vast majority of them are decent people. They're doing their job. In fact, I, I've always thought, and if I could make one change in the FBI, I would have every agent working criminal cases, at least, go work for a defense attorney for at least six months just to see how they operate and what they do and how they do it. And the fact that everything you do, they're going to go back and double check you. So you have to be careful. You can't can't go into a case saying, I know this guy's guilty and I'm going to prove they're guilty because they're going to go back right behind you and talk to the same people and say, what can you tell me that's in favor of the subject of this investigation? What can you tell me that they did right? What are the mitigating circumstances that you're aware of? If you're not doing all of that, then you're making a mistake. But the cases that I got as an independent forensic accountant were from attorneys that represented businesses that had been defrauded. I had an attorney one time tell me, he said, you know, a good investigator knows the law, goes out, gets the evidence, proves the case, puts it together and brings it to me. A great investigator knows the law, proves the case and knows what the defenses are and has looked into those defenses so we know how to counter those if it's appropriate. Sometimes it's like a chess match to where you understand, hey, Every case has got a weakness. Absolutely. The question is how strong, in a sense, is this fatal weakness here? And if there is one, more than likely a defense attorney will know about it. But you have to understand, hey, there's a weakness in this case. It doesn't make it fatal. It just means that we just don't have the evidence for this small part of it. And we just acknowledge it and go on. Yes. But the, the main thing is that the attorney you're working for knows that it's there. He's not blindsided by it in trial. That's the worst thing that can happen. Yeah. Number one rule is no surprises. Exactly. No surprises. If you have a weakness in the case, you let them know. We're weak here in this area, strong in other areas. One of my primary responsibilities as the ASAC at the FBI here in Birmingham was to make sure that my special agent in charge, the person I reported to, never got bushwhacked and never got surprised. <laughs> if there was something that happened that, that was unpleasant or bad, they knew about it first, and then I dealt with it. The, the attorneys, they, they want to know what they're what they're up against. They want to know what the defenses are. The prosecutors do, and then the defense attorneys are looking for those defenses. So why not look for those while you're doing your investigation? Just common sense. Looking back in your FBI career and sub-career, what is the biggest mistake or lost opportunity that you have? Well, my biggest mistake is a whopper. I was on the inspection staff. Out of FBI headquarters, I was doing a uh, an inspection of a legal attache in Hong Kong, uh, and there were a group of five of us that traveled there. We went from um, Hong Kong then on to Tokyo. I had a, a what I consider to be a friend, not a good friend, but a friend on the inspection staff. I didn't really know them till we got kind of thrown together for this trip. But he was a camera buff, and so was I. So we exchange camera information. And I actually learned quite a bit from him. Went out to dinner a few times. He was a, a unit chief in foreign counterintelligence and a really nice guy. A little bit strange, but nice. So while we're on that inspection, we got the opportunity to visit to the USS Los Angeles, which is a an attack submarine. It's not a boomer, uh, out in Hong Kong Harbor. And so the inspection staff, we 
got on a boat and went out to where the submarine was moored and only a small portion of it was above ground, obviously, but uh, above the water, I mean. And when we got off the boat onto the submarine, there was a Marine guard there and he looked and saw that my friend and I both had cameras. And so he said, he looked at us and said, no pictures. We both acknowledged and said, yes. And I ended up going in before my friend was part of the group. I think that's probably one of the first ones because I came out and I was standing there by myself. And then my friend comes out and he's standing beside me. And I made the comment to him. I said, that was really amazing. I wish I could have taken a few pictures. And my friend just kind of nonchalantly said to me, well, I snapped a few when they weren't looking. Isn't that like a national security problem? Uh, yes. The snap, <laughs> the snap pictures of a submarine. To be perfectly honest, yes, it is a national security issue. <laughs> so, you know, and it caught me off guard. And I, I thought, well, that's a dumb thing to do. You know, why would you do that? But, you know, he's a FBI agent. He's got clearances at the highest levels working for him, counterintelligence. In fact, he was a specialist with the Russians. And so I, I let it go. There were a couple of other odd things that happened, but that was the, that was the big one. Nothing resulted from that until about five years later, I was I had left FBI headquarters and was here in Birmingham. And all of a sudden it came on the news that the FBI had arrested one of their agents as a Russian spy. And it was my friend. And so the minute I saw, and his name was Robert Hansen, Bob and I had been on that inspection trip and then he's the one that said that to me and the first thing that ran through my brain when i saw his picture on the on the news that night was the fact that he had said that to me and so based on my travels with bob and the statement that he made to me i ended up with an all expense paid trip to washington dc and, and raised my right hand and give a sworn signed statement to the office of inspector general for the department of justice that's that's not a pleasant experience I no that you know i i've I do a lot of interviewing, very few interrogations, but that was an interrogation. It was a very, very professional team, a, a young man and a young woman. They were, they're young compared to me now, but at the time they were about my age. They really seemed to want a piece of my hide. <laughs> and and I don't blame them. I, I would have done the same thing. Finally, they realized that, no, I, I had no idea that Bob was a, a Russian spy. You know, the only time we ever had any contact was during that inspection trip to Hong Kong and Tokyo. At the very end, they asked the question that every good interviewer should ask. Is there anything that we haven't asked you about you want to tell us? And I went, yes, there is. And I told them the story about the submarine, him saying that I snapped a few and they weren't looking. And they looked at each other and smiled. He had already told them about it. They knew. I guess they were just waiting to see if I had, if I was going to tell them about it. I said, it's driven me crazy since I saw the fact that he was arrested and realized that it was the person I had been on the trip with. And I said, did he sell those photographs to the Russians? And they said he offered it to them, but they said it was old technology and they weren't interested in it. But, you know, there for the grace of God, that was a dumb thing for me not to turn him in. I mean, he clearly had done something inappropriate, whether it rose to the level of national security. I'm sure it probably did because the, the technology is classified. But I, I should have done something about it, and I didn't. And that's probably the dumbest mistake I've ever made. Wow. That is a fascinating story, and you're right. It was a whopper. That, <laughs> that was good, Alton. I, I, I do appreciate it. Yeah, but not many people can say that they, you know, they travel with Robert Hansen, and and he told him he it stole could have some, turned them in earlier, just just in case. Yes, yeah, I, I know. I know. But therefore, the grace of God go on. You ready for the final four questions? Yes. What is your biggest motivation now? To be useful. 
to, to continue to do something for, not to be grandiose here, but do something to give back. Um, I've been very blessed. I've had the opportunity to have what I consider to be one of the best jobs in the whole world with the FBI. I've, I've had my own firm. The work that I'm doing now with the Shepherd County Sheriff's Office is very rewarding. The investigators there and the officers are outstanding. They're very professional. Uh, I'm proud to be a part of that group. I, I just want to give back. I, and plus, the other thing is, you know, when you get to be my age, and I'm, I'll be 70 here in a, in a few months, you want to feel useful. And it's really important, right. you know, that you, you feel like you're still doing something that of value that helps other people. And so that's my primary goal. What books have changed your life or thinking? I've read tons and tons of books, but if, if one book uh, changed my life, it was the Bible. I study it. I read it all the time. I'm an elder in our church, and I present the Word on occasions in, in our meetings. It's taught me so many life lessons. There are so many wonderful things in there that teach you about how to deal with your fellow mankind, how to, to put other people before yourself, how to uh, conduct yourself in, in an honest and way with integrity and, and doing the right things for the right reasons. There's just a lot of life lessons in there. That And it, plus, it gives me peace. When I get into really difficult situations. And when I'm testifying almost every time, I just, I feel like the Lord's hands on my shoulders and, and it just calms me down and, and I can tell the truth and everything works well. The book that's influenced me the most is the Bible. You have a favorite book in that book? Yes. Hebrews. 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 My favorite. Very nice. I've always liked the Proverbs. I've always believed that if you read one chapter a day, which is 31 chapters, and you read one chapter a day for... A full year. You just have a master's degree in social counseling. You have a master's degree in finance. You have a master's degree in personal relationships. Exactly. So many wise sayings and things that you can pattern your life after, you know, that, that makes sense. And, and yes, it, that's, that's a great book. I agree. Share something that you've purchased in the last 12 months, less than $100 now, that you enjoyed has made your job easier. What's something that you could recommend to others that's less than a hundred bucks that, that says, I want to be just like Alton. He uses it. I need to get one. Uh, you know, I have a farm and so I am constantly buying tools. I, I am a tool nut. I have to admit, I have toolboxes everywhere. You know, I, I bought a, uh, a craftsman tool set. I, I, I love it. It's got standard and metric in it. It's got a, a you know, a few extensions. Uh, if you do anything around your house, and I, I'm a tinkerer, but I'm also, you know, I do automobile repair work. I work on my tractor. I, I try to do as much of the mechanical work as I can uh, before I take it to someone who actually knows what they're doing, So, which is a lot of the time. I, I you know, I will foul something up in a heartbeat and it cost me twice what it would have cost me if I just left it alone. A Craftsman tool set is, is something I've purchased recently that I'm really enjoying. They like the uh, metric system, standard system, like wrenches and sockets. Yes, yes. I got gotcha. you. Yeah, half inch, three quarter inch versus ten millimeter. Ten millimeter, millimeter, it's always missing. Yes, the one you need. All right, final question: If you had to do something else and you were fired today, what would you be doing? I would find some way to get back involved in investigations. I am very blessed in that the I wasn't able to do the volunteer work when I was working for the firm because my job there was to bring in revenue and to help the firm continue to exist and be profitable. But once I had my own firm, I was able to do the volunteer work. I would find another way to volunteer. I volunteer uh, at the Red Cross on occasions. I, I, I've done phoresis donations for, in fact, I've done 307, I think it is, phoresis donations, the platelet donations over the last 
25, 30 years, I would find someplace else to volunteer, someplace that needed some help and didn't have to be complicated or technical, just someplace where I could make a difference in people's lives. I, I would do that. Now, I have nine, two children and nine grandchildren, and I spend a great deal of time with them now, which is a real blessing, too, that I'm able to do that. But still, I would want to find some way that I could give back, whether it's a retirement home, uh, helping you know on a volunteer basis, or working with a different police department, working for the Red Cross, going on missions to help rebuild places where there's been storm damage, I would find something else to do that would allow me to give back for all the many blessings that I have. It seems very similar to your career at the FBI and as well as what you're doing with the Sheriff's Office. You've Thank you so much for your service at the FBI as well as what you're doing in the, in the local Sheriff's Office down there. I do, do appreciate it. Thank you so much for being part of this. It's my pleasure. I have thoroughly enjoyed it. Loved your stories. It's great wisdom, great life lessons. You're very kind. Thank you. But thank you very much. You're more than welcome. It was a pleasure to be a part of it. And thank you for your service, too. I appreciate it. Thank you.